we haven't talked over the intro for a while. Like it was sort of our thing in the beginning. And now we don't do that anymore. Hello and welcome to the Plants and Pipettes podcast where we talk about plant science. Did that sound official enough, Yaram? Yeah, that was very official. That was a very nice intro. Um, that Always I, complaining that we don't sound like we know what we're talking about, which is <laughs> kind of our thing, but that's yeah. the official thing. We know nothing about what we're talking about. Um, yeah, how are you, do- how are you doing? I am doing much better this week than I was a couple of weeks ago. I think it's like the the corona coaster, the roller coaster of emotions from corona, and now I'm back on the up again, which is because I went outside and I also met up with the one other friend I know in London, basically, because <laughs> um, I moved here quite close to when lockdown happened. Um, but I met up with a friend who I've known since I was maybe 11 years old um, from Australia, and that was super nice and mm. yeah good to see somebody who wasn't my housemate or her partner was not nothing against them but good to see another human being and talk to another human being um in in real life yeah, um, yeah it was quite amazing yeah i'm also um actually i've been quite busy since the last time we spoke um the less important thing is that one of my cats like not my cats like we have three cats in the house and we share the house with my mother-in-law and her cat escaped or pretty much um, was taken. Um, it's like uh, the cat can f- roam free and then somebody found the cat and was like, oh, this poor little fellow needs needs help and took him home. And so for the first time ever, I could hang out flyers with a missing cat. Um, but your cat, this, this same cat has been taken like four or five times because yeah, yeah. it lives outside most of the time and it's very, very friendly. But it has a collar on it. It has clear instructions saying that it belongs to somebody, and yet people keep on picking it up. Yeah, it has the microchip, it has the collar, it has everything. Um, and one time somebody picked it up and then drove it like 10 kilometers away and deposited it at the cat shelter a long way away from your home. Yeah, actually like an hour drive by car. Ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> ridiculous amount of, uh, uh, far away. Like I, Guys, I understand that sometimes cats are genuinely lost, but mostly cats are not lost. They know how to get home unless you actually move them out of their location. Yeah. Then they might be confused. Just leave the cats alone. And also we're still in Berlin where you don't have like these sort of feral free kitten uh, roaming around that you can pick up and adopt a cat. It just doesn't happen No, here. it's like, cold. Winter is coming. Cats would die in, in Berlin in ev- the winter. Ev- every cat that thing. you see outside is owned by someone and very often they're not escaped they are free to leave but anyway it worked uh, pretty efficiently like i i printed out like the posters and then went around and hung them up in the neighborhood and in the evening already we had the call we knew where the cat was and then we could pick it up but it didn't work from the poster this was not cause and effect right no it worked from poster somebody saw the poster and was like um oh yeah, I actually uh, have your cat. I thought it was lost um, and contacted us uh, <laughs> and called us. Um, and you swore at them for a little bit and then went and got the cat. And then, Did they want a reward for the cat? No, no. I th- they, but th- Like, it's crazy. They, they picked up the cat. They immediately bought um, like the, the toilet and food and everything. Um, I mean, Dude, they stole your cat. They didn't find it. But then <laughs> they, they deliberately took that cat. But then they... There are several really friendly cats in my neighborhood right now which would follow me home. Yeah. If I wanted to take them. Yeah, I guess. I'm I'm just assuming the best in people and 
they wanted then to give us all of the stuff that they bought. And we're like, no, we have that. Like, that's our cat. We have cat toilets and everything. Um, but maybe you want to get a cat yourself. So just keep it. And eventually you will have, you'll get a cat and then you can use it. I'm also going to argue that if they were a couple, one person in the couple really wanted a cat and used your cat, stole your cat, knowing they would have to give it back, but as an excuse of like, well, now we have the cat toilet, I guess. I mean, like, we can't use the cat toilet. What, what else would use a cat toilet? It's not a dog toilet it's not a ferret toilet like um yeah i mean that's purely ah, fictional i have no idea but um yeah so that that worked out quite well so that was exciting because I, yeah i've never done that before and um you said that was your least exciting thing or your less exciting thing what was yeah. the, the <laughs> by now thing? i think i should have reworded that because um the other thing was i was invited on a podcast uh to talk about crispr and what crispr is all about uh, through LinkedIn of all places um, somebody contacted me there and uh, it's called the Innovational Correctness Podcast by David Luna um, it's mostly aimed at sort of uh, business people and uh, deciders and, and, and higher ups to talk about innovation um, and so I talked about like the innovation potential of CRISPR and that was quite interesting because um, there was all these Sorry. questions of like when can we cure all disease because of CRISPR I was like first of all I'm a plant scientist and second of all, um, no. <laughs> oh, but they, they did it um, just last week, I think. There was something about curing a rare genetic disease which causes blindness by like directly inserting CRISPR into somebody. Yeah. Is that correct? I don't know, but I'm, are, I mean, there's I some genetic... I expect you to know all of the CRISPR news. You are the CRISPR guy. <laughs> no, I mean, there's some, there some diseases, some genetic diseases where you could potentially think about a genetic therapy. I but mean, when sickle cell anemia is, is the really obvious one. So this is yeah. like a single base change from CTU, I guess, um, which can be changed by using CRISPR with some editing. Yeah, that that's one thing. But first, but these would be things you have to do at the embryo stage, right? You can't yeah. do it on an adult or a child. You I have think to do this that. was done in the the adult this blindness thing, but I I don't even know where I heard that. Yeah, I'm curious. But with we're far away from this. But and there it was aimed at like uh, things like cancer or hiv or parkinson's like the the three big things um and all of them work very differently and all of them are not uh, like cancer has some genetic component where you could imagine doing a sort of preemptive tr um, treatment but sorry it wasn't it wasn't just recently it was in march um the doctors have attempted to cure blindness by they injected droplets of fluid that contained the CRISPR DNA fragments directly into a patient's eyeball. Hmm. Um, it was the genetic condition called labor congenital amaurosis. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, there's definitely some things where we can use CRISPR for th uh, th uh, therapeutics, but um, yeah, we're, we're not at a point where we can just say, oh, you have Parkinson, here I have CRISPR, um, let's cure you. That's that's still pretty far away. And depending on the cause of Parkinson's may be also impossible. If it has a genetic component, you could imagine using a genetic so. tool. But if it doesn't, don't we don't know. Like I looked it up. We don't know what causes Parkinson's. Um, Wait, we oh, is it linked to the prion thing or is that something completely different? We, we just don't know. We don't know if it has like an environmental effect, if it's genetic, if it's a combination, if it's... So like, I'm getting confused. You mean like we, the humankind, don't know as opposed to Tegan and, and Yorick On Wikipedia don't know. it says the cause for Parkinson's is unknown. Um, yeah. So we, we have no idea what the mode of action is and how, it is, how it's mm, caused. Okay. 
So as as I was species, say very confidently that it is hereditary, but maybe that's not true. I'm thinking of Huntington's. Maybe that's hereditary, right? And maybe it has a hereditary component. Um, as I said, plant scientist here. Um, don't take any medical advice from me. But um, the point is, like, didn't you do something medicinal at some point? <laughs> no, no, not really. Like my studies had a um, um, medical biotechnology branch, but that I avoided cleverly. Um, um that's that's pretty much it um yeah anyway the podcast is uh we recorded this on monday it will be out in two or three weeks um i'll i think i'll mention it again on the podcast briefly when it's out but it was it was interesting to talk to somebody who's from sort of it business area interested in innovation about a biological concept that has its complexities and also then answer questions like can we develop a COVID vaccine because we have CRISPR Um, to which to my knowledge the answer is also like probably not because it's like a virus particle and um, oh but I actually have a fun fact about this I was going to bring it up later but now is the perfect time not necessarily um, a cure but just published in Nature Biomedical Engineering on the 26th of August so a couple of days back there was a Cas9, no, Cas13, so a different kind of um, enzyme snippy thing. What's that called, Yoram? <laughs> Nuclease. <laughs> Nuclease um, was used as a detection method mm. for COVID. Yeah. This was used for SARS CoV 2, which is different, but it's kind of possible that this could. It's using a different method that doesn't require the traditional piece like qpcring um and i i kind of tagged it because cool different method but also they named so the system is called specific high sensitivity enzymatic reporter unlocking assay can you guess what they uh, that was too quick for me to figure out the acronym specific <laughs> high sensitivity enzymatic reporter unlocking assay Sherua? Sherlock. Ah, Sherlock. <laughs> they called it Sherlock. So it's the Sherlock assay, which is, <laughs> yeah, now an alternative assay using um, the CRISPR associated enzyme. This time it's Cas13, not uh, Cas9, to, to see if people have a type of COVID. And it had, it was used um, in, it was clinically validated, sorry, and it had a very high specificity and very high sensitivity. So that was yeah. kind of cool. It's, it's, it's kind of clever. I mean, virus particles are very, like, structurally very important for them. Is there DNA or RNA that they contain? I actually don't know if, if uh, COVID is a retrovirus or a DNA virus. But, um, yeah, it's very clever to not go for the protein structure, the sort of the outside coating, but to go for the nucleate acid structure in, in there and detect that and CRISPR is a very good tool at finding um, nucleic acid, uh, acid sequences. Yeah, it sounded a bit complicated because it used a kind of um, recombinase polymerase amplification, which is different from our normal mm-hmm. PCR. Um, and it also has a kind of visual readout that you can sort of see. Um, it's called lateral flow and it basically allows you to read it by eye. So it had a few things where I was like, I do not know these techniques at all. <laughs> um, but yeah, 
apparently it's a potential to do things when there's limited access, for example, to a quantitative PCR. So, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, so CRISPR, CRISPR can be useful after all. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> I mean, do you want to talk more about like medical research and CRISPR? Two topics where like I have some knowledge about CRISPR, but I never used it in the in the lab and both of us are not medical researchers. I don't know enough about how this works to talk about it confidently. What I do want to talk about speaking about my lack of knowledge, um today I was working along happily, um, feeling very productive, and then my boss shared an article which was written by somebody who turns out to be a child prodigy and I immediately was like, What have I done with my life? I'm never gonna even be a child prodigy. <laughs> I like I've peaked I'm already over 30 years old <laughs> like what's even what's even happening I mean what am I going to accomplish and then I was discussing this with my other workmate um via chat about what I could be like maybe I am I was a child prodigy but my parents just didn't realize it so for example I could have been <laughs> an amazing flautist like I could have I could have been really brilliant but my my parents never handed me a flute so that's on them <laughs> And then I was thinking about the other things that I actually know that I did do well as a child. So I came up with when I when I was very young, my parents used to take us to a lot of nurseries. And I don't know, like nurseries where you buy plants, um, possibly why I have my obsession with collecting plants. It's not my fault. It's either nature or nurture from my parents. Yeah, it's always your parents, too. And I know that with <laughs> it's you always already. always your parents' fault. Um, but I, also, like, the thing about nurseries is often the plants, you're not allowed to touch them as a kid. They don't let you, like, pick the flowers. And they're often, like, a bit higher up so that you can't necessarily reach them. So as a kid, I would go to these nurseries and I would just pick up the... It's called blue metal. It's, like, this artificial small stones that they keep in nurseries. And I would put them in my pockets. <laughs> so I think, like, that was what I was a child prodigy of, was collecting blue metal. And I'm going to put that on my CV from now on. <laughs> and then I was wondering, like, Yoram, if you had to choose what you were a child prodigy of... What do you think? Um, I mean, I, I could. I was always very good um, with words in the sense that I could make the case that not, something wasn't my fault. That I could, sh I could shift blame to my brother or explain in great detail why I'm, I shouldn't like, do the, the chores. Like very annoying. Like I didn't have debate club, but I, I was great at debating anything um, to my own advantage so i think that would be my child prodigy moment um which is funny because i only started to, to talk very late like so like my my brother is almost two years younger than me and when he started to speak at, at the normal age that's when i also started to speak so i was like two years late with speaking what? so everybody thought i i Something was wrong with why, me. Why did I not know this? And then I never shut up. And then I... <laughs> I mean, I was not going to say that, but maybe you're catching up still. It's, yeah, it's a maybe. thing. <laughs> but yeah, and then my, my brother is much more sort of quiet. Uh, I mean, he had no chance. Were like, your parents worried me. that you didn't talk? I guess so, yeah. I mean, they, they must have been. I mean, they, they never said to me that they, they, they were too, like, they never shared their worry, but I guess they were worried. And like, sometimes they mentioned a little bit. But yeah, it was... Like doctors were like, ah, oh, there's something wrong with this boy, and we like we have to like figure out what's Did wrong. Did you get dropped on your head at any time when you're a child? Like, was there any like accident where? I I don't know. I mean, I I technically was there, but I don't remember. Um, so maybe I was dropped like just before I wanted to speak, and then I was dropped again when my brother started to speak, <laughs> and I sort of re reversed the first drop as we know yeah, from all like of the cartoons. A... 
Um, yeah, I was thinking of a soap opera. Like I was yeah. in a car crash and then I forgot my memory. I forgot everything. I lost my memory. Yeah. And then it came back. Um, and then, yeah. And I think that was my child prodigy moment. Just. Okay. I mean, it's not talking. as interesting as mine. My my alternative would be like eating snails or. <laughs> I don't know. But you, you ate snails or do you want to? I, like- I must have. There's there's photographs of me really close to grass and snails and like there's one of me like crawling in the grass and most of the grass is on my chin, so I've I've clearly been having a little bit of a cow moment. Um I have a lot of photographs of me really awkwardly groping cats, like holding the cat but just like pretty much with my hand up its butt like a puppet and the poor cat is just kind of I mean I'm sure it will happen with your child and your cat soon where the cats just tolerate the presence of this tiny human who is really quite ridiculous yeah yeah no I I never had cats and anything so I I just had my words I had to smith Blame beautiful words with my words um, alright let's go to the paper <laughs> let's talk a little bit of, about plant science It's the paper of the week. Um, it's the paper of the week. This week I chose something from PNAS. Um, the paper is called Complete Microviscosity Maps of Living Plant Cells and Tissues with a Toolbox of Targeting Mechanoprobes, which is a bit of a mouthful, and I guess we'll go into those words yeah. as we talk about the paper. The paper is by first author Lucille Michels, I think in the lab of Jaros Brackel. And everybody involved in the paper is in the Netherlands. But they're not really in plant labs. They're more in chemistry sort of research, physical matter, soft matter, chemistry, which is going to become really apparent as we talk about the paper, <laughs> I think. I think the first word that we should talk about and dissect is microviscosity. Um, this paper is about microviscosity. And microviscosity is just one step removed from viscosity. And it's just small viscosity. <laughs> it's just a little bit of viscosity. Um, and viscosity. No, I think it's not a little bit of it. I think it's, no, no, it's, it's viscosity the, at small scales. Yeah, viscosity at small scales. And first, like viscosity in general defines, um, to me, it's the thickness of a liquid, like how much resistance a liquid gives you when you try to move through it. Um, a very viscous thing is something like honey. Um, that is liquid, but you it has a lot of resistance to it when you put your spoon in there. And something that's not very vis- uh, viscous is, for example... Sorry, what are you putting in the honey? A spoon. Okay, the audio cut out in a really weird way there. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> uh, when you put the spoon in the honey, you have some resistance. And then something that has low resistance is, for, for example, water. Or even if you think about ethanol, like from like antifreeze liquid that's even less viscous than water. Um, mm-hmm. And so you have a range there and liquids and especially liquids where that have soluble matter in them, um, they range in viscosity. You, like, you know, the experiments with when you dissolve starch in water, you get um, something that gets more and more viscous and then gets special properties as well when you like hit it and then it suddenly is solid and then it gets to... <laughs> I mean, at one stage it becomes a non-Newtonian fluid, which yeah. is a whole different thing. <laughs> yeah, but um, that's uh, the... That's viscosity. Microviscosity is just the same concept at a very small scale. So um, instead of having a full whole tub that you're looking at, you're looking at my um, mic- microscopic structures and the way the fluids um, put up a resistance in that 
um, yeah. Area. So the the small scale here is the cell, or even smaller, it's the different compartments or different sort of domains within the cell. And that's actually why I chose this paper is because it's not something I've ever thought about. I've worked with plants and you know different plant organelles, these subcellular compartments like the chloroplast or the mitochondria, for for many many years, and I haven't really thought about the different viscosity that it can exist in different parts of the cell. But it, it's quite an important thing, changes in viscosity within the cell. So, Yeah, they define a lot of metabolism, right? They, the more viscous a uh, fluid is, the harder it is for molecules to diffuse through them. And mm. if a molecule is slowed down by its medium, by its surroundings, it slows down the process that it's involved in. And therefore, there's a direct link between sort of um biochemistry biochemistry reactions between enzymes and and their metabolites and the environment um if you imagine they're sitting sort of like a mucus like very dense structure it takes a longer time for things to diffuse away from them than if they are sort of in empty water where there's nothing hindering the path um and similarly, like if you think about signaling molecules or so hormone or some other chemical that has to pass a message from one part of the cell to the other or even, you know, across multiple cells, that's just going to take longer often if there's more viscosity. And then on top of that, there's also changes in local viscosity. So there's like viscosity gradients that get actively generated by the cells as they grow and develop. So through different life cycles, when you have like division of the cells, this actually causes or involves changes in viscosity. And it's, it's very important for the way these structures then develop. So that leads to the idea of these mechanical forces that are at play. And I think that's very important because we often forget forget them. Um, I personally, when like I work with proteins and protein biochemistry, you always draw them in these like empty spaces. And you say like, you have like this complex floating around here in empty vast space. And just like the one metabolite that binds to it comes to it and interacts. But in fact, they are surrounded by things and they, these things have mechanical properties, be it membranes that have mechanical properties up to the entire cell wall. Um, that's very important in plants. The, the plant cells, they have a rigid structure and depending on the internal pressure, they can be sort of softer or harder and so on. Um, so there's a lot of mechanics at play that at least I and I think... Um, other researchers as well they sort of we, we tend to overlook these things because it's complicated mm. and hard to measure and um yeah we often focus on other things when i think about proteins or enzymes or molecules moving through the cells you have this image of like somebody running freely through a field of grass you know open but it's more like struggling through a an underground train carriage in rush hour it's it's jam-packed with other molecules other proteins just different structures so yeah and just part of this is then coming back to this viscosity sorry yeah so what the scientists actually focus on developing in this paper is different rigidochromic dyes and that's basically got two parts. The chromic is colors. So they make colors, in this case, fluorescence. Um, and the rigido refers to rigidity. So basically, these dyes, they make color, but the color depends on the structure. And in this case, it's a kind of rotor, a molecular rotor. And when you give a an input of energy, in this case, a light input, the rotor basically twists around a bit. 
and then as it twists back, it it gives the fluorescence out. This is how I understood it. Um, yeah, you can you can jump in if you think I'm saying this wrong. <laughs> no, it's I think it's also like this is like in the area of organic chemistry, which is far away from what we are very comfortable with. So I also I just know there's a sort of a solid part and a spinny part. Yeah, and when the spinny part spins, that gives off a fluorescent signal, and the faster it spins the shorter is the lifetime of the fluorescent signal. Yeah. So, that so it's got, let, let's say that it has like four rotations worth, and we're oversimplifying here, but four rotations of spins to use up all of its fluorescence. And obviously if it does those four really, really quickly, the time of fluorescence is shorter. And then in the context of viscosity, if it's doing those rotations in mud, it's going to take longer to do it than if it's twirling through non-viscous air or water. So there's now this relationship between the viscosity and how fast it moves its spinny bits, it moves its rotor, and therefore how long it fluoresces for. And um, just to give you an idea about the time frame, when we talk about longer or shorter, this is in the range of nanoseconds. So a short time is around 1 to 1.5 nanoseconds. And the long time is around 5 to 6 nanoseconds. But it doesn't really matter because they're not capturing this with the naked eye. They're <laughs> using computers. So the actual shortness of the time is not super important. So then the computer can work that stuff out. Imagine someone sitting at the microscope with a stopwatch. Damn it, I blinked. And then on one hand, he's like triggering the light impulse. On the other hand, he's like <laughs> pressing the stopwatch for the nanoseconds. No, what do you think the fastest human reaction time is? Uh, it's in the millisecond range. I think it's between... Is it like 300 millisecond or something like that? It has something to do with like the way our brain processes the information. Mm -hmm. We can't really be much faster than that on a physical, that's sort of the physical hard wall that even somebody who's super good at reflexes, they can't get further than that because that's the time it takes for the signal to travel from sort of the brain to our hand or wherever we do the action. What if I have really short arms? <laughs> maybe, maybe that would help if you have like... Like a T-Rex. Could a T-Rex have shorter reaction time? Maybe that's why T-Rex are superior predators, because they have shorter arms, so they can, like, smack you faster. I don't really think they use their hands to hunt very much. But if they use their hands to hunt... <laughs> like, if you were doing a kind of Western gun draw, like, one, two, three, bam, the... the but also, he couldn't reach his draw. He couldn't actually reach the holster of the gun, so... Okay. Don't you edit that out. That was gold, Yara. No, no. See you typing edits. No, no, I'm not, I'm not edi editing anything here. Okay, I looked up that the fastest human reactions are around, like the very fastest are 150 milliseconds. Um, for most people, it's around 200 milliseconds. And it can't really go much, much faster than that. Maybe that's like when I was putting that blue gravel into my pocket as a child, maybe I was doing it really, really fast. Maybe, <laughs> maybe it was like what, at like a fifth of a second you had it <laughs> in your pocket. Just like, bam. Anyway, back to the paper, back to, the paper. To, <laughs> to the organic molecules. Um, one thing that I want to mention about these molecules is that um, the basic principle of them was known before, uh, but they were only soluble in lipids. So you couldn't really use them in living things because the, everything is mostly based around water. I mean, we have some like lipid membranes and so on, but um, it's really hard to get these, these molecules there because they were insoluble in water. And so they modified them chemically with organic chemistry skills that I don't have, but um, they modified them in a way that they can be water-soluble and that allowed them... So what they did here is they created four of these rigidochromatic dyes 
And the reason they made four of them is because they wanted to target them to different places in the cell. One was going to the cytosol, one was going to the vacuole, one was going to the plasma membrane, and one was going to the cell walls. And your arm is now going to tell you what each of those compartments do. So the cytoplasm is pretty much the empty space, which is, as we know now, not empty um, in the cell. So when whenever you draw a cell structure and you draw like the nucleus and the chloroplast and all of the important things, everything that you don't draw is the cytoplasm. It's the space in between where a lot of chemical reactions happen. Um, and so, yeah, that's a very important space, but um, yeah, often overlooked by people okay, who study organelles. Which is then the vacuole. Your arm is slow. A vacuole is basically the storage unit, so it's kind of a big compartment which things are put into for storage. And then the plasma membrane is yeah the membrane around the cell, um, which is similar to the membrane you have also in animal cells. It's a lipid-based soft membrane. And cell wall is the wall outside of that membrane, and it's cool because animals do not have that, and plants are better than us. And together with the vacuole, the cell wall defines the pressure of a cell. Um, so if you have a tight cell wall and a lot of pressure in the vacuole, then the, the cell is under pressure and that gives rigidity to plants. Um, and if you have a low pressure, oh, yeah. then its stuff is soft. Yeah, and that's actually true. Understanding the different um, pressures within the cell wall is really important because, as Jerome says, it's necessary for the rigidity of the plant, but... The cell walls have to be both very rigid and also very flexible because as the plant grows, the cell wall has to expand. So it's kind of this weird paradoxy thing of how cells manage to expand and divide and still be rigid. Um, And so they they targeted these four different spaces within the cell and um, measured the, like put their, their, their rotating dyes in there and looked at how the lifetime of the fluorescent signals behaves under different conditions. Um, and a very important thing here is that you can't directly compare the cytosol um, sensor from the to the vacuole sensor because um, they there will be uh, many other factors at play as well that define the response of these sensors. So you can only compare the cytosol sensor under one condition to the cytosol sensor under a different condition. Um, uh, and so you can't directly, as of now, say the the cell wall is four times more viscous than the cytoplasm because you can't compare them like this. Yeah, so that's basically because the, the viscosity that they're measuring is basically measuring different things. So in the vacuole, it's kind of like fluidy and homogenous. It's all, all sort of the same, like slightly goopy liquid. So you're just hitting, you know, a few more molecules. Whereas in the cytosol, you're hitting not just like the kind of floating solutes, but you're also hitting other proteins. So it's like this crowding density issue of bumping into other enzymes. Um, in the cell wall, you're also looking at the kind of mesh shapes of the building blocks of the cell wall. So it's, it's different things in different locations. Normally, when we talk about targeting things to different locations in the cell, we're talking about targeting proteins, and we use these certain targeting sequences, which are kind of encoded into the gene, like they're in front of the gene. Um, in this case, this is not what we're talking about. Instead, what we're talking about is chemical um, moderations to this rotating head, which basically just changes the permeability of this rotor itself. Mm. Based on the chemistry of these dyes they could target them to different spaces because they would interact better with them. Yeah, so they made a basic structure which has the body and then this rotating head which which makes this time-defined and viscosity-defined fluorescence. 
and then they added little it's basically little hats or little hairstyles onto the head and depending on what hats or hairstyles they have this changed the permeability of the entire chemical structure this entire rotor molecule and let it go into different compartments so it could be permeable enough to get all the way into the cytoplasm or slip into the vacuole or kind of settle in the cell walls depending on the different hats that were being worn by this pretty little molecule yeah and now with this method at hand, um, they chose to put it into um, into cells. And here it's important that they didn't put it into into a plant. They didn't just like dip the plant in their solution and then could observe it under a microscope. They used cell culture, which is a way of keeping cells alive outside of the organism in a liquid medium. Um, and then they could very easily add their dyes to that and then um, have them... Uh, enter the cells and attach to the points that they wanted to measure. Um, I think, yeah, later on they did also do some experiments with young Arabidopsis roots and that seemed to work, but again, roots are quite thin, there's only a few cell layers, it's quite permeable, it's easy to get stuff in there, so I'm not really sure how well this would work with sort of infiltration into a leaf. I guess you'd have to kind of syringe it in, like inject it into the leaf in some way. I'm not as, as, as certain, but it does work for the cell culture and also for the plant roots. Yeah. Um, and with that, they could show a couple of things where we had already some under, uh, understanding about, which is very typical for methods papers that they first show on, on, on existing knowledge. They show that they can recreate that and add sort of another layer of, of information to it. Um, and they looked at the formation of root hairs and how that happens and how um, the, the cell wall um, has to become sort of less viscous and has to become softer for, for the extension and harder at the tip to push through the soil. Um, and they also looked at uh, stomata, which are the pores on the leaf um, that open and close to let um, air in and out of the leaves to let um, carbon dioxide enter the leaf and oxygen leave the leaf. Um, and these stomata, they are under pressure, and when they move, the pressure changes in them, and therefore also the um, the mechanical structure changes. And they could see with their dyes, uh, they could follow that as well, how they softened under certain conditions. I think when they are they open or closed under their pressurized state, I always forget. I think they're they're closed when they're not pressurized, and when they're pressurized, they yeah. open. But yeah, that's that's a very cool way at looking at different plant structures and the way their mechanical properties change during growth and during the, their lifetime. So why this paper is so cool, I really like this kind of lateral approach. As Joram already mentioned at the start, we often think about living systems in the context of their genes and also of chemical influences, but we don't really think very much about mechanical influences. And it is something that's very important. And again, for me, it's not something that has occurred to me much before this, so... I quite like that and I also quite like that the people who have written this paper are not coming from a typical plant background, they're coming from this more chemical and, and physical background, which I think, I mean, that's a science of the future, right? Combining all the fields a lot more than we do now and really looking at the same sort of problems with different views. Yeah, I, I, I like that as well. I really like that they brought this whole different dimension into it and um, like so often with new methods, time will show what cool things people come up with when once they have the tools on hand. There will be some researchers looking at this and be like, this is exactly what I needed to answer my question. And then they will play around with it and they manage. And 
that's really cool always with seeing these new uh, methods papers. So yeah, so that was the um, complete microviscosity maps of living plant cells and tissues with a toolbox of targeting mechanoprobes um, by Lucille Michels from the lab of Joris uh, Sprakel. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun So I found a, a story about how you don't have to be uh, a jerk to advance your career. There's this notion that only the people who are willing to screw other people over, who are sort of selfish and um, yeah, that, that these people uh, have more success in the workplace because they're willing to throw other people under the bus so, to advance their own career. That's sort of the stereotype. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a study that's published in PNAS um, about people that's called people with disagreeable personalities in uh, parentheses selfish, combative, and manipulative do not have an advantage in pursuing power at work. Um, and I think this is based on surveys that they did um, over a very long time, um, over 14 years. Um, and they looked like they did personality service according to standardized personality models uh, and then followed them up over uh, 14 years later um, where they ended up with their careers. Um, so they, in the beginning, they c- could categorize people into sort of yeah, having a selfish personality, having a, um, a very um, empathetic personality, and then they f- looked where they ended up. And they could see that... Um, these these disagreeable individuals uh they were not all doing better than sort of the non the agreeable individuals um and they came up with the idea that um while they have an advantage from the dominant aggressive behavior their lack of ability to work together with others sort of negates that um advantage and they say it's a zero sum zero sum game um that they yeah, they do well. They do better at being dom- dominant and aggressive, but they do worse in cooperation. And both things are needed to succeed. So um, they that overall that cancels each other out. And they, yeah, they don't do all better um, be- just because they're jerks. I have to say that I was so surprised by this that I actually so Yoram has the title of the fun fact saying apparently you don't have to be a jerk to advance your career. I actually read that as apparently you do have to be a jerk to advance your career. <laughs> that was immediately how I interpreted that because of my own bias. Um, <laughs> look, I, I'm surprised about, I mean, I can understand that not being able to work communally should have a disadvantage, but I still think, I'm, I'm not sure which field this was in. I still think in science, there is a lot of reward for working on your own stuff and not helping other people yeah actually i don't know that um the paper is not open uh open access so i didn't read the full paper i just read um i think i found it through twitter and then uh, i i read the abstract and they, they don't say where these people end up um mm-hmm. so in which field that is and how large the sample size is and and, and so on um so yeah i don't know but as they talk about leadership positions and CEOs, I think it's in, in industry and not necessarily um, strictly academia. Uh, and I guess you can imagine areas where you can make up for the lack of, of ability in cooperation um, and then just have your advantage uh, of being dominant and aggressive. 
uh yeah but i i I found it interesting that they did like a systematic study in over 14 years very anecdotal but i definitely got told that i shouldn't be spending so much time helping other people (laughs) while i was doing my like yeah 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 yeah, no no focus on your own stuff focus on your own stuff and it's like that's not yeah um oh so something really cool a couple of weeks ago i saw something i do not know how i do not know when and i cannot find the source of it again this is not the cool thing but the thing was that somebody i think a woman had tattooed a doi so the like issue information for a paper that they had published mm-hmm. so they had a tattoo basically of this this string of numbers with some slashes in there and and some letters um for the paper, which is quite a strange thing to do, but but quite cool. I mean, it's obviously something that meant a lot to this person professionally and, and during their life. And I think the paper was also a paper on diversity, so it was kind of a cool study. So then I was looking into this and I couldn't find the source, as I said, but I did find a paper that was published way back in October in 2011 um, by Margot DeMello, published in Nature. And it's called Sociology, the Illustrated Scientist. And it's basically looking at the different types of tattoos that scientists from different tribes have associated with them. So people having DNA helixes or just the kind of more common E equals MC squared. One person they say was a chemist who had tattooed the molecular structure of phenobarbital Mm -hmm. onto them. And this was a drug that he gives his cat to control the cat from having seizures. So there was a lot of these kind of weird personal connections involved as well. Um, And lots of, I mean, it's a tattoo, right? So you're choosing to put something permanently on your body. Often you have a story behind it or a reason for doing this thing. And this is just a discussion of the different reasons that people might have science-related tattoos on their bodies. And it's quite nice. Oh, cool. Yeah. I know that you don't have a tattoo, so I don't have to ask you if you have one, but at least none that I know of. But would you get a science tattoo if you if you were up for any tattoo? I would definitely consider getting a plant-based tattoo, probably an Australian plant to kind of accentuate some strong scars that I already have sort of as mm. a... Yeah, that would be cool, actually. That. I mean... You know, the thing about tattoos is it's it's a permanent change to your body. It's it's not going to go away, but I already have some of those. I already have scars, um, so I I don't feel any ab- problem with tattooing. I think it's something that you should feel like you should want and, you know, yeah. the rule you should put it on your wall and stare at it for a year. And if you still like that image a year later, then you can put it on your body. But yeah. The main thing that yeah. um, keeps me away from tattooing um, or getting a tattoo rather is um <laughs> that i can't enter then japanese uh onsen anymore um because they forbid all oh, really? tattoos because the tattoos are linked to the yakuza um and therefore there's signs at all the onsen places so that's the hot springs where you like the public baths and i quite enjoyed that experience to go into them and so i don't want to bar myself from going into these places forever because I want to have like a nerdy tattoo somewhere. So that's the main thing that keeps me from actually getting a tattoo. And the main thing from that keeps me from getting a tattooing is finding the time because a friend of mine, she actually had bought a tattoo gun and some like uh, silicon skin to, to practice. Um, and she actually has tattooed a couple of people already. And uh, I want to learn from her how to do that. 
Um, so I, I have the skill of tattooing if I ever need it, which I don't see when I would need it. But it, it's just something I find very cool and would like to be able to know how to do it. Um, I think your reason for not getting tattooed is very bougie. Well done. Um, I think, I mean, they might have those rules, but I suspect that, you know, as a foreigner in a touristy place, you would get away with that anyway, right? I'm not sure that that would be a hard and fast. I don't know. I heard that they are quite strict about this rule. Um, Like we have a common friend and uh, he has tattoos and he said that he couldn't go into like these Japanese places. That uh, that can that they would not allow him. In. Are you going fully naked into the onsen, or is it like some toweling required? Is it what? Is it fully naked, or is it like fully, some it's, towel it's cover fully up? Naked. You could probably get. You could probably get it in a weird place, and then if somebody's looking too closely, just yeah, I could question why they're looking right between my legs or somewhere. Um, yeah, at a place that's probably insanely uncomfortable and also completely useless because who are you showing that area of your body to show off your tattoo? And um, so, I mean, presumably your your partner. That's yeah, but still like. So my next thing is uh, a Twitter thread um, that I found quite interesting in terms of the um, sort of the argument structure. There is from Greg Larson, who is I think a writer and co- um, comedian. Um, actually says in his writer he's a writer comic slash director slash podcaster um and he started a tweet thread with um where he said name someone who is universally agreed to be evil like a genocidal dictator serial killer etc and i'll defend them and their actions using uh, conservative logic um and it's a very fun read it's it's a little bit upsetting because he uses the argument structures that people actually use for real for bad things um, but mm. somebody just pitches Joffrey Baratheon from Game of Thrones and he replies, so now we are just poisoning people we don't like. Oh, by the way, spoiler alert, like I don't care for Game of Thrones. So, <laughs> um, so now we are just poisoning people we don't like. Sure, he was young and when we're, you're a teen, you do some rebellious stuff, but boys will be boys. Does that mean we poison them? Any teen who rides a skateboard or wears a backwards cap now should be poisoned? Um and that's just one of the examples there and goes on and there's like lots of horrible people that have defense like that um with this exact in fairness joffrey joffrey was probably like 12 or something right uh segueing on from somebody who is a comic but also does podcasts i have recently been listening to the podcast from the q gardens which is hosted by james wong it's called unearthed mysteries from an unseen world And so far, it only has two or three episodes, um, but it's about kind of plants and how they are involved in various crimes and mysteries and just nice, cool stories about that with some experts from the Kew Gardens. So that's just kind of a recommendation. I think that's quite nice. Listen, and it's it's quite pleasant. It's it's quite enjoyable. Hmm. I have a story on wild pollinators and how they are adding $1.5 billion worth of yield uh, in the United States alone. And that's a study where they looked at, um, they sampled at different agricultural areas in the United States and Canada, um, the types of insects they found there um, from the almond orchards, or, or, orchards, the almond orchards in California to apple and cherry plantations and so on. Um, and uh, many of these places by now they use they have their own stocks of honeybees that they use for pollination because that's crucial for their um, production. Um, but 
even in places where they have honeybees for pollination, they could still find a very large uh, fraction of wild pollinators um, doing the work. And that means that without these wild pollinators, they um, yeah they, they calculated that if we wouldn't have the wild pollinators, that would mean a loss of $1.5 billion. And that's interesting because by now with our modern agriculture, we're actually often already at a bottleneck um, in terms of pollination. So there's enough nutrients in the ground for the plants, there's enough water for them to grow, there's enough sunlight to, to turn into chemical energy, but um, there's not enough uh, pollinators around to actually bring the pollen um, to the flowers to induce fruits. And um, therefore, it's very important to keep track of our pollinators and especially the wild pollinators. And uh, wild pollinators are threatened by human expansion, by pesticide use um, and other uh, factors, uh, also like climate change and so on. Um, so we really have to look out for the wild pollinators because losing them would mean um, a massive loss of yield. And like when we say about $1.5 billion, that's also like less food that is made for us to eat. Um, so yeah, that's, that was, a, I found a quite interesting story. Um, so this is something that's good news, which is there is has now been published the a large trial of a strategy in which mosquitoes have a limited ability to transmit the disease that causes dengue fever. Um, there was a large scale in Yogyakarta in Indonesia, and it had a huge decrease in the amounts of dengue cases, so down to 77% lower than what they were before. And it's quite a cool strategy. So basically... The mosquito, they're called Aedes aegypti, is the mosquito that normally carries the um, dengue fever. And what they've done is just infect these mosquitoes with a common type of bacteria. It's called Wolbachia, and it's normally found in lots of insect species, fruit flies, moths, dragonflies, butterflies, and also some mosquitoes. But it's not normally found in this Aedes aegypti, which is the one that carries the dengue fever. And they found that when they put the Wolbachia, this bacteria, into the Aedes, um, it basically outcompeted with the dengue um, causer, and therefore you can basically reduce the the likelihood that these Aedes aegypti will then hmm. um, spread diseases. And these mosquitoes don't just carry dengue; they also carry Zika, yellow fever, a lot of other things. So, if putting bacteria into the mosquitoes can make it harder for viruses to reproduce inside the mosquitoes. This could be a really great, quite natural solution. So there's not genetic modification involved. It's just putting one species into another species, which is already kind of found in similar species. So it's, it's theoretically lower risk as well. Um, yeah, and it looks really, really promising. So I think this is, there have been some trials before, I think even in Australia, but they didn't have the proper controls and it was kind of smaller. And this is now a quite a large scale trial. And um, I think it's over the last four years or three years. And it just, it looks really, really promising. So that's quite nice. Yeah, cool. I found a study where they looked at um, islands and how many plants are growing on that island. And I don't mean in individuals of, uh, of a single species, but how many different species are found on that island um, and they counted on the island of New Guinea 
um, they, and they counted that there uh, over 13,000 species of vascular plants. And that puts New Guinea at the top of the list of islands um, in terms of plant species growing there. Before that, there was Madagascar and Borneo um, that were pretty high up there. But um, I think Madagascar is about 10% less plant species and Borneo has 20% less, uh, less uh, plant species, which makes New Guinea the champion of all um, plant species growing there. And I think it's... Sorry, is it by area or is it just by I island? I think by island. So you have a factor of different sized islands in there. And I don't know if they count Australia as an island, technically, um, and how many so species are growing on, on in Australia. But it could well be that Australia doesn't have 13,000 different species of vascular plants alone. Apparently incorrect. I just Googled and admittedly it's from Wikipedia and I'm sure it's not confirmed. I'm sure it's just, you know, somebody counting and pointing. But it's, uh, I Googled how many plant species are in Australia and it says that it's estimated to be over 20,000 vascular and 14,000 non-vascular plants. So then probably Australia doesn't count as an island. But we're surrounded by sea. Biggest island, smallest continent, man. Aren't all continents surrounded by the sea? No, apparently you guys think that Europe is a continent and there's no sea around Europe. I call it Eurasia and Eurasia is surrounded by the sea and I think Eurasia has more um, plant species. What about Africa? Um, Yeah, so (laughs) I guess for like smaller islands that aren't even proper islands because Australia is the best islands for the smaller islands, New Guinea (laughs) leads the pack with over 13,000 verified plant species. In, In fairness, New Guinea is right next to us, so I think... I mean, it's fair. I'll let them have it. <laughs> it's a lot smaller as well than Australia. <laughs> okay, so my final fact is not really a fact. It's more of a, I looked at the internet and then I Google image something and then I was delighted and I wanted to share it. So, Yoram, have you heard about sea pens? Sea pens? No. Yeah. They're super cool. They basically look like feathers like the old-fashioned quill pens, that's the name, sea pens, which have been plonked into the bottom of the ocean. And it's a Nidarian, which means it's related to sea jellies or what was previously called jellyfish. It's got little stingy bits. Um, And they're basically really, really beautiful. It's this feather floating on the winds of the ocean. And I was looking into this a little bit, and apparently way back when, people thought that these sea pens were some sort of unholy matrimony of animal and plant because they look very plant-like. They're kind of stuck into the bottom of the ocean floor and they have very fern-like frond structures, but they also move and respond like animals. So if they're startled or if they're, you know, being predated on, they will kind of shrink up and, and, and duck into the sand a little bit as well. So it's just a really beautiful, uh, I guess they're an order of of um, organisms, of animal organisms. Yeah, an order with 15, 14 families in it. And I really encourage you to go and Google image it because they're pretty and they're cool. Yeah, I'm, I just pulled it up, um, just an image search for that. And um, yeah, they look they look so fascinating. Like sea creatures, they range from like scary and weird to really fascinating. I wonder what they feel like. They must be very soft and I mean, they might be stingy, honestly, because Nadarians can often sting, I think. I think that's the the jellyfishes or the sea jellies, as we are now calling them. Yeah, speaking of things that are not plants, I uh, I have a cat fact this week. 
I think it's actually a very cool cat fact. I'm very happy that I found this. It's called... It's it's a paper. My cat fact is a paper, and it's called Diverse Perspectives of Cat Owners Indicate Barriers to and Opportunities for Managing Cat Predation of Wildlife. Um, So we talked about it many times. Cats are awesome at killing wildlife. Like, they go around they kill birds and rodents and um, marsupials in in australia and um they are just a major damaging factor to ecosystems because we as humans we really like cats for good reasons like there's nothing to dislike about them um but (laughs) when they go outside um they kill and often they even just kill for fun because they are well fed at home and they enjoy killing things actually my cats recently they're bringing they're bringing mice upstairs um to play with them which is a little bit sad and disgusting um but at least mice um are not endangered so um i think it's actually good that they're getting them from wherever and it worries me that we have mice somewhere but anyway um so this study they surveyed a number of people um about their relationship uh, to cats and cats being outdoors and if they would be willing to restrict a cat's movement to protect the wildlife, to, to cut down on the hunting. Um, and I encourage you to open the link. It's an open access paper. Um, the figure one is a, like we always like papers that have cats in the figures and the figure one caption is the cue sorting procedure with assistance from several cats um, because they went to to people's homes and then they had to sort statements into a pile of agree to disagree um so they not agree to disagree but from the range of agreement to the range to the other point of disagreement um and the, the there are two cats in the pictures that are looking at the, their owners like laying down all of these cards on the table um and looking like what's going on there or assisting apparently and the fun thing about this um, paper is that you can find that in figure three of the paper, if you opened the link, that they categorized cat owners into one of five groups. And I want to figure out like what group you are in and what group I am in. Um, <laughs> the first group is um, the cat owner of being a concerned protector that worries about roaming cats being lost, stolen or killed, that keeps cats indoors to keep the cats safe. Um, and don't really care about hunting behavior because the cats are inside so the cat doesn't get killed. Then there's the second group, that's the freedom defender group, that says cats should be able to roam where they please. Um, They are a a wild animal, so they should do what they want. Hunting is a good sign of normal behavior, and any restriction on cat movement is bad, and I don't want to restrict it. That's the freedom defender group. Then there's the tolerant guardian um, that says the they are aware of the problem of hunting, but they say it's fine. Like the benefits of roaming around um, outweigh the cost of them hunting. Um, and they don't really like that their cats are hunting, but they don't really want to do anything against it either. Then there's a conscientious caretaker um, that say their cats should have access to outdoors, but they um, lock them in from time to time so that they don't hunt. Um, they're bothered by the hunting and they have they acknowledge their responsibility for managing their cat's hunting behavior and finally there's a laissez-faire landlord um, um, who says uh, it's natural for cats to just go out and do what they want Um, they have never thought about them having an impact on wildlife populations Um, and if they would be aware of the cats killing something constantly they maybe would consider locking them in but they don't really care about much about so these are the five groups um 
did you recognize yourself in any of these groups with your approach to cats? I think factor four, probably the the conscientious one. I think mostly because I always had cats in Australia and there it is quite a large risk to native wildlife, which are not used to cats. I think if I was in, in Britain with a cat, I would be slightly less worried. I, I still think that owners have responsibility for their cats hunting, but I do think it's the cat's nature. So I don't think it's the cat's fault. I think that actually the fact that it's the cat's nature places it more on the owner. It's it's your fault if your cat hunts because a cat will hunt if it goes outside and especially if it goes outside at night, right? Cats are nocturnal and they like to play and hunt in the night. So they should definitely be kept inside at night. And I think in Australia, it's a bit more responsibility to keep them inside as much as possible. But yeah. I say this having had outdoor cats who were only indoors at nighttime. Yeah. Yeah, I think I started out as group one, the concern protector. Um, I didn't want my little babies to be hurt. And so I didn't want them to, to go out and eat like rat poison or get run over by a car. Um, and so we kept them inside for a very long time um, and only like very carefully let them out. And by now I'm more the conscientious caretaker where I know like the cats enjoy being outside, but actually my cats, they come back in very quickly, very often. Um so they, apart from like one of my cats, as, they, as I said, they, he brings home mice by now. But apart from that, they don't really, I don't really see them hunting so much. I don't, they don't really go far away from the garden. So um, I'm aware of their behaviors and I'm happy to lock them in, in, in if necessary. But yeah, um, the whole point of the study was just not fun of categorizing people. Um, it's to come <laughs> up with ways to address these different types of cat owners in respect to locking the cats in because they said very often we have these calls of we have to do something about the wild bird populations and we have to do something about the cats but they are never the calls they're never um, formulated in a way that these cat owners of these different groups actually care about that and as you said most cat owners are sort of against the idea of keeping their cats locked inside apart from the sort of the the um, protectors and therefore um, studies like this are supposed to help with figuring out a way of actually addressing these people and um, coming up with communication strategies to convince them that it's better for the wildlife to keep the cats indoors um, so that was sort of the point of the study but it had cat pictures in the figures um and <laughs> nice groups of, of cat out. owners and so yeah i think it's cool it's published in frontiers in ecology and the environment and this is a study by sarah l crowley martina chichetti and robbie uh, a mcdonald and i think from the um the whole study was done in the united kingdom okay i think that's where we end today we have had massive connectivity issues the whole episode so i'm sorry if this podcast episode comes across as a little bit more disjointed than usual um, poor Yoram is now going to spend four or five hours trying to hack it all together and make it into something manageable. Um, yeah, that's it for today. Sorry? Yeah, see? I have no idea what he's saying. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll hear in the recording what you were saying. I was delightful, as always. 
Um, if you want to look at more of our stuff, you can see us on our website. It's www.plantsandpipettes.com, where we publish twice a week articles about different aspects of plant science, different stories that we just find are interesting and want to share. So this week we had a story about a certain type of giant chloroplast that is found in a spike moss, kind of an ally of ferns, Salaginella. And also earlier in the week, we published a story about this really amazing algae, which can grow very, very rapidly. It can double in just one and a half hours under optimal conditions and can also um, withstand intense sunlight. So up to twice as bright as full sun. And people are investigating this algae now to understand how it does its magic. So those two stories are on the blog, but we have a lot of backlog as well. If you want to check that out, www.plantsandpipettes.com. You can also find us on social media. On Twitter, you can talk to me usually. That's at Plants Pipettes. Oh, and on Facebook and Instagram, you can talk to me. It's at Plants and Pipettes. Uh, tell your friends about this podcast uh, and about our blog. Um, that's the best way to support us. Uh, if you want to look into more ways to support us, you can check that out at plantsandpipettes.com slash support. If you have any comments, concerns, queries, whatever it is, please do feel, feel free to leave us some comments on any of our social media or one of the apps will eventually find it and get back to you if we can um, or make some changes. Um, you can also listen to our other podcast, which we co-host with Ellen Earhart. It's called The Plant Book Club. And basically we read a different book about plants each month and then discuss it as a group, as a book club works. And this week we're rereading Braiding Sweetgrass. So if you want to read that now, you can probably catch up with us and listen along in a couple of weeks time. Our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. Um, thank you for listening and goodbye. Bye, guys. Oh, my God. This is hard. That was so hard. Why was that so hard, Europe? <laughs>